0: Hi, I'm Shane Safir.
1: And I'm Alcine Mumby. And this is Street Data Pod, where we dream with you about next generation schools that affirm, love and value every learner.
0: Here we have conversations about healing, hope and listening at the margins. Good morning, community. We are so thrilled to be back for our Chapter 3 episode with amazing guest, Young Wan Choi. Young Wan is one of these people that I kind of feel like I've always known. Like we've sort of always been in each other's orbits. I can't even really pinpoint when we first met, but we are certainly kindred spirits in the work of school transformation, educational equity. And I have learned so much from witnessing Young Wan's courageous leadership and, and truly student-centered leadership over the last decade or more. And so Alcine and I are just thrilled to have you here today. Welcome to the pod. Thank you, Shane.
2: Thank you, Alcine. (laughs) And and Shane, I do remember when I met you because I was in the room acting so uh, petulant because I didn't want to be at an all-day retreat with the staff. And you were called in to facilitate... (laughs) because I was tired of meetings that were just a lot of talk without a lot of substance. But I remember the way you facilitated. And I was like, okay, that's somebody I can get down with. So yeah, I remember.
0: Awesome. Oh, my God. I'm so glad you have that moment with you. That's beautiful. So before we dig into our questions, we wanted to ask you, is there an idea or an innovation out there in the field of education or outside of it that's really calling your attention right now?
2: You know, what comes to mind, and it's, it's sort of an interesting take on this question, I think, because like, sometimes when we think about innovation, innovation can sometimes like sort of have this, you know, implied sense that it has to be new. But, you know, for me, meditation practice and mindfulness practice is something that is often talked about as an innovation or like, oh, we're doing this mindfulness, like this approach. And it's actually very, it's an ancient practice, yes. right? It's a spiritual practice that all human beings, if you go back in time, and you look at religious and spiritual traditions meditation and mindfulness are central to those practices mm-hmm. prayer breathing you know recitation chanting like these are things that i think are so critical to the human spirit and i think mm-hmm. a, a system that actually listens to children uh, has to be a mindful system it has to be mm-hmm. a system that oh. is grounded in meditation that is grounded in really you know as as you've written about shane it's it has to be it has to be focused on listening. And you can't listen if you're moving, you know, 100 miles an hour, right? So you have to be centered in your body, you have to be centered in your breath and really be able to connect.
1: Oh, my gosh,
2: Beautiful
0: answer.
1: I love that answer. And what's so interesting is I was recently listening to a conversation between Angela Davis and Erica Huggins. Erica Huggins was the Black Panther who built their educational platform. And she was also jailed prior to starting the educational program. And she was separated from from her young child who was a toddler, maybe two at the time, and she's in a jail. And she only got to see her kid maybe like one hour a week or like a very short truncated visitation time. And that's where she learned her meditation practice of stillness, because she had to learn how to be with her child without all that anger and rage. And so that's how that practice became a part of the educational platform of the Black Panthers. It was like this idea of stillness. Oh, wow. T- yeah, they taught mindfulness to their kiddos. as very important in being present, you know, you using your power, all the things that you were also mentioning. And so I just thought that's such a neat...
2: She actually just told this story last week in my class at UC Berkeley to a group of 15 pre-service social studies teachers. She told that exact story about being centered and mindful and still because of what she had to endure in solitary confinement Mm. and how that Mm. got her through. She wouldn't have survived without it.
1: So I love that you're bringing in that stillness practice Mm. into this equity work and school transformation, because that is in the work that I do with adult learners, especially when you're a leader, you're usually a doer. You're not thinking about how you be. You think about how you do and what you do. yeah. And so the being part is so important. Thank you for reminding me of that. Yeah, oh.
2: I mean, I could keep going, but like it does make me think about, you know, because when you said innovation, we often tie that to like products or technology and it's driven by this like capitalist agenda. And I think that, you know, this idea of urgency of getting places quickly. All of that is driven by the kind of culture we live Mm -hmm. in, the economic imperatives that are coming from corporations, you know, pressure on schools to produce results that really take us away from that stillness, that take us away from being present with our children, being present with our students, and really listening to them and building an educational system that's responsive to where they're at, as opposed to responsive to what the capitalist society is saying we need. our workers we need from our producers Mm. and it takes such a commitment and a groundedness to yeah and a persistence to like really Stand in that commitment while all the pressure is focused on those external demands. So I think mm, yeah. you know, your book, Shane, is such an important contribution to this. You know, need to really question not just you know, oh, it's good to listen to students, but your book questions the entire system in which we are doing education and asks us to really rethink how we, you know, fundamentally think about knowledge. Right, where knowledge exists within our system. So, thank you for the book, and I'm I'm super excited to talk more about
0: this today. Oh my, it's funny because the word I mumbled wasn't persistence; it was actually resistance. Oh, and yes, resistance. Which you know, I knew we were gonna go big in this conversation because you're young, Juan, and you think big. (laughs) You're a visionary. (laughs) But I love starting with this place of you know something so simple but so countercultural, right? To slow down, to be mindful, to imagine even what a mindful system would look and sound and feel like. Is so profound. So actually from big, we're going to go really small because one of our intentions in this pod is to invoke one inch windows on stories within the educational system. So I'm going to invite Alcine to ask a little bit about little young Juan.
1: So to what extent did you feel seen and valued and affirmed as you were moving through your K-12 schooling experience? And maybe even if you want to, how did those experiences shape the work that you do today?
2: Thank you so much for starting with that question. I think it's the question we need to start with in every conversation that we have with people in this work, because it grounds us in our purpose. It grounds us in our vulnerability, right? Our own stories of why we're here. And it connects us to each other, because I think when we hear each other's stories, we feel a sense of connection, you know, because people are speaking their truth. And it's not about the politics. It's not about, you know the ideology. It's about the human to human connection in those moments. And for that reason, I start my book with an answer to this very question. And I'll just show you all, though I think you may have seen this, but I start with a photograph of little young Juan. I don't know if you can see, but I'm all the way over here. I'm literally at the margins. You may not be able to see it, but I'm like frowning and I'm like gripping. I think it's like a pencil sharpener in my hand. I'm like gripping it. Oh my God. Um, And uh, I experienced a lot of alienation in school. And when I look at that photograph, I feel I'm reminded of that. I'm just reminded of how nobody reached out to me during that time. There was no educators who really saw me for who I was took an interest in me and the system just didn't, and the people in the system, right? We're not just talking about the system, right? But the the people within this system of education didn't see who I was and didn't bother to ask how I was doing, because I was suffering. And when I got to college, actually, it took that long, but when I got to college, I had the first experience in, and it wasn't even in a classroom, it was in an orientation program for students of color. And it affirmed me in a way that I hadn't been affirmed by any part of my K-12 experience because there was an Asian-American man who came to our orientation and he talked to us about the contributions of Chinese-Americans. And I'm not Chinese-American, I'm Korean-American, but to see another Asian man talk about the role of Asian-Americans, of Chinese-Americans, specifically in building the Transcontinental Railroad, which is like fundamental knowledge that every kid should be learning in school, in elementary school. I didn't know that. I was 18 years old and I didn't know that my mind just completely shifted in that moment and i said oh my god people like me had a role in this country like we have a place here we had we've contributed to this country it was shocking to me and it should never have taken that long the other thing he showed us was The political cartoons that were at that time depicting Chinese workers as like these heathens with, you know, kind of like rapacious intent and big overbites and, you know, slanted eyes and darkened skin. Right. You know, we always have to racialize the body when it's doing harm. Right. Or when it's perceived to be doing harm. And so I saw that and I was like, oh, this is why I was treated the way I was treated. Not because there's something wrong with me, but because there was a system that was exploiting people like me. And so, learning history was like such a personally transformative moment. And it, it was not the history I learned in K twelve education; it was that history that I learned about myself and mm. the larger system and helped me understand my place in that system. And it was both like this infuriating moment of like rage against like why have I, why did it take so long? But it I also describe it in my book as like a source of freedom for me like I felt free like wow I can see myself now. Uh. And it was a feeling I wanted every student to have. It was that moment, literally, that was the spark for me that I go back to time and time again as like the reason I became an ethics studies educator, the reason I wanted to teach social studies. It was about my own experience in school that really drove me to want no student of color to ever have to go through K-12 and not see the beauty, the depth of their contribution, to feel a sense of deep pride in who they were, to understand their roots, and and to feel validated by the larger culture, even if that larger culture was just our school or that classroom. So it's been at the heart of what I've been doing for my entire 20 plus years in education is that story. I'd come back to again and again.
0: Young Juan, thank you so much for gifting us with that story and all its tenderness and present day emotion, right? Because we're not, time is non linear, as Alcine teaches me time and again, and we're still our little selves and our big bodies. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I hear your story first as a parent of Asian Pacific Islander children who to this day have actually never, ever had Filipino or Filipino American content in school, neither of them, despite having educator parents and all the things. Like, don't see themselves in the curriculum. So just acknowledging that this is still a struggle. It's not like we've solved this. And I also just as an educator want to really elevate what you said that like this is history every child needs. It should not be relegated even to an elective. I mean, yes, on ethnic studies. And this is American history. Like every Mm -hmm. child growing Mm -hmm. up in this country should know these things. As a former U.S. history teacher, I really believe that. So thank you for grounding us in such a place of purpose and also of epistemology, right, which is the heart of this book, of really expanding and deepening our sense of like what is knowledge and what is valid knowledge in, in the historical record and how do we tell a much fuller story of this country and, and those that, that we come from. So. Whew. All right. Mindful um, We're going
2: to,
0: all of us, we're going to practice that mindfulness yeah. that, Young Wan evoked at the beginning. So I'm gonna invite you to talk a little bit about your current context, the the system you work in. And it feels like a hard term, but I know it's not given what you just said. I know that all of this personal story you know, animates and informs what you do. So it gives a street level view of your current system you work in, what's happening there, and what are some of the underlying factors contributing to the equity sort of challenges you're facing?
2: It is not a hard turn in the sense that, like you said, this story animates everything that I do. And the way that I show up in spaces in the Oakland Unified School District where I had been both a teacher and in the central office leading professional development for over 18 years. I actually did just leave in June, but it is the context that is most fresh and the one that I know most intimately. And so I'll just say that in that context, when you take a street level data lens, which I so appreciate, it reminds me of how often I would stand in meetings and say, well, what about what the students think about this decision? Have we talked to any students? Can we get a focus group to listen to students about these issues? And the irony, the deep irony of the whole thing is that like one of our agendas, you know, every year, you know, some new leader comes in, we create new agendas and new norms. There's always a norm about being student-centered, right? (laughs) But when you look at the agenda for any meeting you go to, students don't appear in the agenda anywhere. Right, their voices aren't there, their work isn't there. Ooh. The only place that they might show up is as a aggregated data point, you know, in some data dashboard, right? And like that's so- somehow supposed to help us be student centered, right? So we're in these meetings, we're talking about let's, you know, who's going to hold the norm of being student centered? But the whole agenda, the whole way in which the structure of the meeting has been set up, has been to marginalize student voice. I found myself constantly coming into these spaces and you know harping on this and just being like that annoying person, the gadfly in the room. And I got tired of hearing myself talk about it so much that I decided to create my own podcast where I went out and taught to students in our system so that I could listen to them and so that the other people that I work with could hear their stories and their voices because as a classroom teacher, I knew there was so much more going yep. on in the lives of our students than what you would see in the media. And the media portrayals of, you know, pregnant teens or of, you know, thuggish kids and gangs, like all of these sort of stereotypical portrayals of our black and brown children in Oakland in particular led to this kind of default stereotypical idea of who they were. But if you just scratch the surface a little bit, if you take the time to listen to them, you hear about their hopes, their dreams, their aspirations, who they want to be, what they love. It humanizes them. And so much of what we do in our system is to dehumanize children and their families because the system is really big and it's hard to do it. I'm not saying that it's easy, but we have to put our priority on bringing student voice to the table in every space that we're in as leaders, as people who work with teachers, right? How do we always bring it back to the students? So I would just say from a street level lens, like in Oakland Unified School District, it continues to be a challenge, but I'm seeing more and more educators that I work with in the central office really try to center student voice to do listening campaigns. And Shay and I must attribute this shift to street data, and I think it is having an impact on how we are engaging with our children within the system. You know, and, it, and there are many people who have been, you know, advocating for this, but I think your articulation of it came at such an important time during the pandemic and at yep. a moment when, when we really didn't know what, if I can cuss, what the fuck our kids were going through. <laughs> Because none of us knew what we were going through, it was you know we could no longer assume anything, and we didn't right. we didn't know before, but we really didn't know. We knew we didn't know at that point during the pandemic, so it forced us to have to reevaluate. Where do we get our data from? Where do we have our understanding of what's happening in our schools? So that particular moment, your book, and all of the you know voices that have been trying to push for these kinds mm-hmm. of perspectives to be in the room, I think, really has push the dial in a certain sense, because I'm hearing from my colleagues, oh, we started our PD with a student voice panel. We did a listening campaign. We did a, you know, this, we did a that. And it's like, yes, finally, like I'm seeing it happen. <laughs> so I'm no longer there. but <laughs> I'm hearing about it. And it's, it's gratifying to hear because it used to feel like I was just that voice, you know, that was shout into sh- the wind. Exactly. Right? Shouting into the wind, like anybody there? Student voice. And so finally, you know, and and it's a pendulum, right? Things are gonna shift, but we always have to continue to hold the line and say, no, we're not going back. Like this is the way forward.
0: Yes, yes. I will say there, it feels like there's almost a spiritual element of convergence in terms of the timing in this book. So of course, I started writing it before the pandemic, and then it happened to come out in the middle of the pandemic. And I think you're right that people were just, you know, if they weren't awakened before, awakened to the fact that there's no dashboard going to tell you why a child is not at school, or why they're failing all their classes, or why they have lost hope for their future like that's a different kind of data that we need so anyway i was wanting to say no 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 but thank you mm-hmm. historical convergence mm-hmm. yeah. and it's mm-hmm. all the people doing all the work that's just converging right with some language. We had to slow down.
1: So to get back to your point of how you started with this mindfulness and the listening, we didn't have the distractions of zipping from here to there. And we had to slow down. And one of the things that I noticed when I would talk to educators and leaders, they were like, we can't see the kids, right? They weren't showing up on zoom cameras, or Mm. they were, you know, and it was like, well, I just want to see them to make sure they're okay. And I remember thinking one time, I was like, remember that, Because you should be watching your babies as they enter your building, as they enter your classroom. Mm -hmm. Like, right? Like, we can't see the kids to know if they're okay. Are you watching them even? Are you looking at them? Are you seeing them? even when they're right in front of you. Right. Um, yeah. And so I just I I think about, yeah, it's a beautiful convergence, you know, right? Yeah. We were ready. The world was ready. And we'll see what they do with it. Going back to normal. That data point, as you know, as you, as you commented on Twitter, if you haven't seen Shane's new article on standardized testing, read it. It's yes. so good. Yes. It's oh, so good. You. And and some of us have been pushing back on standardized testing for many decades. Okay? Mm-hmm. Decades. 100%. Yes. Right? 100%, 100%. Yep. And so I just love how now I think people are kind of listening. But as you talked about, it's a capitalist machine. ETS wants to get their money. Pearson wants to get their money. Right? Like all these folks want to get their money with their
0: testing system. So we still have to. Clearly, they're not going to sponsor the podcast. Yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Listen, Shane, as we say in the black community, all money ain't good money. So, you know,
0: I am so with that. We don't, we don't need those sponsors. We don't okay. need that
1: sponsorship.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we're selling
2: this out of the trunk. We're, we're doing it. Yeah.
0: We're, this is Street a, data, this is a, street style. Street data pod truck. Yeah. We're going <laughs> to serve from the truck.
2: Yeah, serve the people. This is, right. this is how we do.
1: So, the core stance of chapter three is anti racism. So, what does anti racism mean in your context, and what makes it hard to pursue anti racist transformation? Big question.
2: So, I'm going to take a lead from you, Alcine, and what you just said about standardized testing and how we've been pushing back against standardized mm-hmm. testing for decades. And that's actually, performance assessment work is actually where you and I connected, was in that space, right? And as anti-racist educators. Yes doing performance assessment work. And why why is performance assessment work anti-racist? Well, the way that I see this work playing out and the truth of the matter, when we think about standardized testing, right? And Shane wrote about, like you all mentioned the article that Shane just wrote. One of the things that I think is not that well understood about standardized tests is that they produce the results that they're intended to get. And the results they're intended to get are a stratification of performance that's tied to socioeconomic factors. So the questions themselves are designed in such a way that we get the results we get where we have these quote unquote achievement gaps, but those are part of the design because if a standardized test were to produce results where every student performed well, it wouldn't be useful, right? The whole point of it is for colleges and other institutions to be able to award kids based on their performance. But the only easy way to produce that kind of stratification is to tie the questions to things that are also tied to where kids come from, what they're exposed to what they know from their communities and so what we end up having right in short is tests that replicate the inequities in our society
1: the questions are designed to reproduce the bell curve That's that right. is how a question is considered valid, valid and effective and effective question on a right. standardized test yeah
2: To that point, I guess I would just say that being an anti-racist educator means that we have to change the emphasis on what we use to measure, right? We need to marginalize standardized testing. We need to push standardized testing to, you know, the periphery, you know, if not get rid of it completely, but at the very least, we need to push it to the side so we can actually pay attention and put our focus on what matters, which is what students are able to do and show us. And that's what a performance assessment is. It's an in-real-time demonstration of what students know and are able to do. So it's an oral presentation. It's a research paper. It's something that a teacher can look at and assess, or really the community can look at and assess. A student cannot look at it and assess on a rubric and know how they need to improve right? If we are truly a, a business of learning or an institution that cares about learning, right, then standardized tests don't actually support learning, right? They're a measurement tool, an accountability tool for the society to say, oh, that's a failing school, or that's not, a, you know, that's a high performing school, which really just means that's a school that's got a lot of money. And that's a school that doesn't have a lot of money, Preach. right? Preach. So if we really want to know how students are doing, we need to look at the authentic assessments that are happening in the classrooms every day. And to be anti-racist is like, right now, I I was thinking about this question. I was like, yeah, it's like teachers are kind of like guerrilla warfare in their classroom because you know they're supposed to be focusing on these standardized assessments. And the ones who really care to do something different, they're having to do all of this under the radar and to say, okay, or schools, right? Sometimes schools do this under the radar where they say, okay, well, we'll do your standardized tests Okay, now that those are done, let's go back to the real program, which is actually authentically assessing students. Right. But it's a distraction and it, it's a resource heavy demand on schools and principals and leaders and students to have to spend all that time focusing on these standardized assessments when we know what really matters is their performance assessments, is their ability to show what they know in the classroom and things they care about, right? A performance assessment task is when designed well, something the student actually wants to show that they know mastery of. It's not a standardized test where students see it and they're like, oh my God, why do I have to do this? And they don't want. Mm-hmm. They don't care to put their effort into it. So,
0: Young Wan, to what extent do you feel like this dynamic you're talking about is linked to the the sh- the sort of quote unquote teacher shortage, principal short, like why people are leaving, and why so many folks of color mm. are leaving, you know, school teaching positions?
2: I think it's all cumulative you know, situation, right? There's like so many different stresses and it's often hard to pinpoint. But I think what happens is that when there's a disconnect between you as an educator and what your leader or your system says matters, it is demoralizing and it yes. sucks your life blood. And even though it may not be the thing that you can pinpoint every day as the reason why you're tired or the reason mm. why this is hard. Mm. When there's a values disconnect or a purpose disconnect or a sense that your principal is talking about something publicly that they don't truly believe in or that doesn't match with what you believe in, those things grade on you, right? And those are the things like this is why, you know, I write about purpose as the first thing in our book in, in the book that I wrote is because that alignment of purpose, that collective purpose is the lifeblood of a school. And it's a lifeblood mm. of, you know, every school that I've worked at that was really strong we all had a sense of purpose that Mm -hmm. we understood and so even when a leader would say you know we have to do the standardized test we knew where their heart was we knew that their heart was in really understanding where the students were at and so we would do it because we were like okay we get it. right? We got to do this for the system. But when we get down to it, we know that we're in it together. And it's that mm. sense of togetherness, that collective spirit that's so missing from so many schools right now because the demands around standardized assessment, because of you know pressure to do X, Y, or Z, that's really out of touch with what our schools and students need.
1: Can I also add that as an educator of color, even as a well-tested leader of color, there are oftentimes I'm in rooms and spaces where my wisdom and expertise is blatantly and subtly questioned. And where I I have literally had to say within my own organizations or when I'm doing um, adult learning with other organizations, I use a phrase my nephew loves to, you know, it's a zinger when my nephew, he's seven, he says, you know, I find it odd (laughs) and dot, dot, dot. And he'll point out a behavior that seems really Just like mundane, like this is how we move. This is what we Mm. do. And I have to say sometimes I find it odd that as the only Black educator who had a single parent, a teenage single parent, dot, 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 first in their family to go to college. And y'all are telling me what kids like me need in order to be successful. I just find that odd. And people stop. Mm -hmm. And they pause and they hear themselves for the first time. And I just think about all the paras in those buildings, those professionals Mm. who who have such wisdom and expertise. And oftentimes they're people of color. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes they're not certified, Mm -hmm. all these things, but they know their kids so well. And you can see that when there's a good para teacher relationship, they lean on each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But when yeah. that is gone, yeah. and when like, everything is being questioned, it's like I agree with you. It's cumulative. You're like, well, listen, I can get a desk job and still maintain my relationship with kids, <laughs> right? Because that's mm-hmm. what keeps us there in the field, or or do something else with kids. But I I, I just want to point that out too. That that is a specific racialized phenomena mm-hmm.
0: experience, right? Yeah,
1: that happens in schools where the folks closest to yeah. the lived yeah. experience of the kiddos are often questioned around their expertise. And so I love how in your book, to bring it back to street data, how you talk about this lived experience as being very, very important, not just way of knowing, way of being, but important to situate your expertise in. Mm, uh-huh, uh-huh. I'm like, don't tell me as Dr. Bettina Love. I didn't read the book because I'm living it. I'm too mm-hmm. like I'm living it. You mm-hmm.
0: read the book. Yeah, but I'm living it. So like, listen to me, maybe as an educator of color. <laughs> So I feel like this is a really beautiful connection to the next thing we want to talk about. So as you know, Young Mon, each chapter is rooted in a guiding principle and a core stance. And we already talked about anti-racism is really the core stance of this chapter. But the guiding principle is center voices from the margins. And you've already started to paint a picture for us about some ways to do that. And I'd love to just invite you to talk more about what does it look like concretely to choose the margins in these really complex times? And, And what advice would you have for educators who are trying to center student and adults, right, if we think about paraprofessionals is a great example right. from the margins in the kind of conditions that we're talking about.
2: We read chapter three, what really resonated and struck me about what you were writing about in street data, Shane, is the systemness of street data, right? The point of centering voices and listening to them isn't just like, this is an activity we're going to do, right? But it's about rethinking where knowledge lives within the system and how we then make decisions yes. about what we're going to do as a school because we've been listening, right? Not like, okay, check off the box, compliance, we did the street data
1: checklist Mm -hmm.
2: right but it's a reimagining a reframing of you know where power exists in our system and who gets to drive decision making whose voices matter and who's at the table when, when it comes to making important decisions about the education of children so I wanted to bring that piece into this part because the things that I'm talking about like in my writing and in my experience like there are lots of little ways that we can bring students in but it's the spirit behind it right that that you're writing about Shane that I think is really important to remember so like as I go through some of these examples I think you know how does this then shift you know the larger system and, and the way in which we make decisions so you know one of the things that I love to do in meetings is to bring in exemplary student work from the beginning, right? And it's funny because like, you know, we do all kinds of icebreakers, we do all kinds of things that are meant to like kind of get us to know each other and, you know, and there's a role for that. But there's almost never an opportunity in a meeting, in an hour long meeting, two hours, even in a retreat for us to like look at some student work and celebrate the students for what they're doing and to actually understand what they're talking about and interested in. Because when you look at an assignment like for example, students that produce podcasts at a public health academy in Oakland High. Yep. You hear their voices talking about issues that they that they care about, right? And so then you start to think about, well, wow, these are the issues they're writing about. You know, anti-Asian violence in the community. They're writing about the 57 bus incident, you know, in mm. Oakland where you know mm. a transgender teen was you know assaulted and burned by a young boy. You learn about um, what's happening in Ethiopia with the Tigray, you know, suppression of the Tigray rebels by the Ethiopian government. These are the kinds of podcasts kids are producing, 10th graders are producing, right? When you take five minutes to listen to it, you realize how much students bring to the table and what's going on in their lives that affect them on a daily basis. There's no standardized test that's gonna show you that, right? There's no data point on a dashboard that's gonna help us understand oh, these are the issues our children are dealing with, right? So when you take the time to bring those, you know, and our educators are doing this, right? So they've, they're creating these kinds of amazing projects. If you bring those to the leadership table, if you bring those into those conversations, it automatically shifts the dialogue around what matters and what we need to be paying attention to. And it doesn't take that much time, right? So you can yes. do these kinds of things really quickly and easily to just begin to get started, right? Even if you're not like, you know, ready to do a full-on, you know, norming around student work, or you, you're you not ready to dig into like a, a big student panel with lots of students talking about their experiences, you know, English language learner classes, for example, or, you know, with some new district curriculum, <laughs> um, even if you're not ready to hear that feedback, right? Like maybe you can just start with like, what do the students care about and what are they talking about? And I'll just have, I have to lift up this one example from a classroom because this educator, Skyline High School, who I'm close friends with, he shared this practice that he's been doing called a 2 by 10. And it's the first time I've ever heard of it, but it's two minutes, 10 days in a row. And he picks one student who he doesn't have a relationship with, who he wants to get to know for whatever reason or connect with because they're, they're struggling or they don't seem to be included or feel you know included in the classroom. And he spends two minutes with them at lunch every day for 10 days. And they just start with really simple questions like, tell me about yourself or how's it going? And by mm-hmm. the 10th day, he says the kind of relationship that he has with that student has completely and dramatically changed. It, yes. o- it only takes twenty minutes.
1: Yes, that's research based. That's from Rick Kerwin. Oh, I forget di- discipline Amazing. with dignity back in the day because nice. that is what I
0: remember we- him he- at ambition oh schools. <laughs> yes.
1: Girl, that's a whole other story, but we're not going to go down that route okay. because you were there. You lived it with me as a leader in that I space. Did. But that was a strategy. Mm. And we used to do that systemically at EA. We would look at the kids who had attendance issues or where data points were showing they were disconnected. And we would divvy up those kids and we would each make a point of contact with three or four kids every day and it wouldn't start out as two minutes it might just be like oh i love your your sneakers or you look mm-hmm. like it was all those things and then you had the kid and the kid had you and y'all were just intertwined wrapped around each other's yes. fingers just like wanting to figure mm. out how do we do this thing called learning together it's called a, it's called a two-minute check-in mm. see and we, shout we out know to how this. to do this right we, we do. know how
2: to
0: well, do this well i love what you said young one what you said resonates so deeply that like some of these things are so simple. And we just get in our own way. Like we think we need the curriculum map and the road and the scripted and the Uh this and the that. And like good practice, student-centered pedagogy in some ways is extraordinarily simple.
1: Uh
0: And how do we, how do we put, how do we marginalize standardized test, to use your language. Oh, that's the name of it. Listen, that's <laughs> so the that title I'm, of this. Let's I'm say. obsessed with that. I'm obsessed with title that idea. Title of this
1: episode, young In I'm
0: order to center not just students, but student-centered pedagogy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We can do that yeah. in small ways yes. and big. And just a shout out to Jessica Forbes. I think you were describing yes, her Jessica work at Forbes. Oakland. Hi, if yes. you're listening, yes. Jessica, you're the bomb. We just have deep love and respect for you. <laughs> all right. It. One more question oh, for I you, and then we'll do Tara our Shute lightning Shute round.
2: Also, she's the it's an interdisciplinary project, so the two of them together.
0: Nice. I haven't met Tara, but their work is great.
2: Yeah.
1: So much wisdom coming from you, young one, and all your years of listening to students. And so what is your next generation vision for education? Or Another way to put that, our dear colleague to the podcast, friend of the podcast, Jamila, she talks about radical dreams. So what is your radical dream for the next generation of schools?
2: So here I, I want to bring in a new book, not to drop all the books today, but you know name drop all the books today. But I was just listening to Kia Darling-Hammond and Linda Darling-Hammond, and they're, they were speaking on their new book, which is The Civil Rights Road to Deeper Learning. And what I so appreciated about the framing of deeper learning is that they start first with talking about safe and healthy communities. Yes. And then they talk about the adequate funding of Public schools, right? All of those things, even before you get to, you know, anything that has to do with what's happening in the school building, right? If we have safe and healthy communities, and if we have adequate funding for schools, that's the healthy foundation that's going to get us to this kind of radical dream for education. And I get it. Like those are big pieces, right? Those Those are huge pieces. But if we as educators don't advocate for those pieces and just focus on that other top part of it, which is like what we do, in schools, right, we will never get to the radical dream of education that we want for all kids. Like we might get a cool school here and there, right, because that's possible, right? You can do that within our system. But to get to fundamentally different kind of education for all the kids in the system, particularly kids that most need it, right, we need to think about what's undergirding this whole thing, right? And right now, there is not a commitment on the part of our society to adequately fund public education, and there isn't a commitment to address poverty, to address unemployment and the other issues that are plaguing so many of the communities that our children grow up in. And there's also not a commitment to, to deal with climate change at, in, at the level that it needs to be dealt with, which is causing despair for our young children. Like they know what's coming. They understand the world that we've left them. And mm-hmm. so if we don't address those factors, we can dream about these schools that we we already know what they need to look like, right? Those of us who've been in education long enough, we we've seen what it means when education is powerful. But we need to address some of those fundamental issues, and I just want to use this as an opportunity to sort of like put the lens on the larger systemic issues that are, you know, really, you know, like tying maybe both hands behind our backs as we try to do this work in schools.
1: Once again, listen all the things, (laughs) all the things there, first of all, all the things there, because as you know, Linda Darling-Hammond has been a proponent for performance assessment for generations, and it's so great that her and her daughter are are also doing that work. Kia used to work at an Envision school back in the day. Yeah, She was a social studies teacher. Yes, she was good. She was good. She worked at CAT, City Arts and Tech. But I want to piggyback on that a little bit, because what I also hear you saying is also, or. I just want to draw out this notion of public schools, deeper learning, and, and civil rights, because let's be very clear. <laughs> the questioning of public schools really entered the equation when we started talking about educating Black children using public funds after the Emancipation Proclamation. I was just actually reading about that because we're doing a project slice here in Georgia and we're going to look at some deeper learning things happening in Georgia. And that was the call that Black families had around educating their children, folks were clamoring to get their kids in a school. Then came the questions. And we see that now because growing up in affluent communities, public schools are not underfunded in these wealthier communities. And those wealthier communities usually serve more non-kids of color, right? Mm -hmm. So it still comes back to that notion of we have to decide as a public, do we really mean that we want all of our children to be well educated and well served by our tax dollars Mm -hmm. in health, in Right. Education and all these other systems that make for a healthy, thriving community. And we haven't settled that question yet, and we're pretending like we have. Oh, dear. <laughs> dear.
0: Thank you. Thank you, young mom. We could talk once... to you all day. Oh, we could. Yeah. We could, really. Thank you for once again just taking us to that systems lens because absolutely. And, you know, we need to be in a space of radical dreaming, not just for the next generation of education, but for the next generation of society. Mm-hmm. Right? right. This is yes. time for folks to really unite around a vision of What's possible. So, Young One, we are going to close with a lightning round of six questions. And let it be said for the record that we are working on precision. in our facilitation <laughs> of the lightning round. <laughs> it is supposed to be quick, both on our part and on yours. So an invitation to, in 10 words or less, or 30 seconds or less, respond, and we're gonna do our best to not get engaged in another deep dialogue with you, because we could be here all day.
1: Okay, ready. You are called to listen deeply to someone, but what they have to say is triggering to you. What's the first thing you do? Mm-hmm.
2: I take a deep breath, and I check in with
1: myself, and then I paraphrase. Oh, that was good. That was a great model of precision too.
0: Love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. Okay. So in chapter one, I call on Tara Yoso's research as a Chicano Chicana studies scholar who defines community cultural wealth as an array of knowledge, skill, ability, and contacts possessed and used by communities of color to survive and resist racism and other forms of oppression. Mm. What is one practice or way of being that is keeping you grounded in the face of resistance and oppression?
2: Cooking and sharing food. With my community.
0: I love that answer. Yes. Young Wong, can we please cook together when I'm back in Oakland? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And, and I'll be there. Just tell me and I Let's will be- do,
2: it. Let's, do <laughs> it. Let's
0: celebrate this your book and yes. this pod by cooking a meal together. I would love that so much.
1: What is one form
0: of street data every educator should gather?
2: Every educator should listen to at least one student a day without an agenda. Just, how you doing? For
0: at least how much time?
2: as long as that student's willing to talk to you.
0: Word, (laughs) word, word, that's a great
1: answer. That's a great answer. Especially if they're teenagers, you better listen, you better soak it up. Wait, wait.
2: they're talking to me? Okay,
1: (laughs) sit down and listen. That's
2: right.
0: All right, what is a type of data you believe is overused in education?
2: Overused data is any data that doesn't inform instruction. Mm. So that's the standard. Can you use the data to improve your practice?
0: If y'all could see Alcy and she's just shimmying, she's <laughs> shimmying dancing. with
2: that answer. That
1: one, that one is good. For people who don't know your work, what do you think they misunderstand the most or get wrong, and what do you want them to know?
2: That it's touchy feely, but the only way you get to systems change is through relationships.
0: And and deeply held it's like beliefs. Like the entire yeah. thesis of the listening leader. But I'm going to shut up and not respond. Um, okay, <laughs> what is one? Essential feature of your radical vision of a classroom.
2: Radical classrooms have open doors to the community, and the community has open access to the classroom.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, permeability. I love it. I'm mm. thinking of Chris Emden and all his biology metaphors yeah, right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. I'm and sure liter- have liter- one Meaning for like us.
2: literally and figuratively.
1: Yes yes open, open yeah. doors
0: open doors full yeah. open full doors permeability
1: yeah. listen it changes your teaching when you think anybody could be in the back of your classroom any given day it sure does um mm-hmm. that's what fannie lou taught me so this question we're talking wait, wait, about- wait,
2: wait did you just say fannie lou like fannie lou hammer in the bronx
1: yes you, you didn't know,
2: what? Yes! What? You didn't okay, know. we gotta we got talk because <laughs> jessica oh God, marshall yeah. and molly shabika I yes molly yeah.
1: shabika be- oh yeah. you know
2: Oh, my God.
1: <laughs> Don Fung. Yeah. Oh, Don oh Fung. my goodness. Genius. That was my... Listen, I spent at least six days a week with Don Fung. Like, oh, my gosh. Yes. Okay
0: listen anyway, we need to, uh, anyway, anyway. <laughs> offline offline just like this conversation though is making me feel like we are all such old are. Yeah, like we have yeah. this like network of people from the 90s from that the we know 90s. like the early 2000s yeah. i yeah. love that i lo- I'm, like we're like almost elders not quite but yeah. like we're on our way yeah. which is so cool.
1: i mean listen my body is saying yeah you an elder um uh. <laughs> that's a whole other story. So this question is around impact, right? So a great learning experience will, what's the impact of a
0: great learning experience? A great learning experience will, Will,
2: a great learning experience will touch the heart of a student.
1: Hmm. Hmm.
0: And I feel like that just brings us right back to where we started with little young Juan at the margins of that picture. And I am not going to forget that story. I feel so blessed to have listened to it and taken it in in my spirit. And just so blessed to be in conversation with you today and a partner, ally, a co-conspirator in this work with you and Alcine as well. Yes. Thank you you so much much for
2: creating the space for this conversation, uh, catching up and just talking about it, getting real.
1: Yeah and new connections listen i don't know what you're gonna cook but i'm there
0: (laughs) yeah we gotta do that don't worry it's
2: delicious
0: (laughs) i i believe you listen i believe you he's like trust yeah Street Data is executive produced and hosted by Shane Safir and Alcine Mumby. The senior producer is Maya Cueva, and our associate producer is Alice Lopez. Our production manager is Jamie Valle. Thank you to Zoe Morgan for social media support and Corwin Press for sponsoring us. And a special shout out to Rocky Rivera, my former student, for our theme music. If you want to learn more about
1: street data and get your hands on a copy
0: of the book, visit Amazon,
1: Corwin Press, or better yet, a local, independent, or Black-owned bookstore. If you like the show, remember to subscribe and give us a five-star review. And if you found us rambling or fumbling over our words, remember, we can't be articulate all of the time.
2: And you're in and You mean standardized
1: aesthetic
2: I mean sorry. Standard, well, yeah, oh yeah, no ma'am no, sir. I use the wrong word. I use the wrong word. Sorry. Let's let me do We're that. We're gonna read that back. Pre- <laughs>